Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. This week on the show, a cross-country conversation I had with a Canadian-born, peripatetic prince of pop folk singers who has jumped through more gauntlets of the modern music industry than anyone I've ever met in his three-plus decades of making records, narrowly escaping death, winding his way from major label glory to humble cross-country troubadour, finally reimagining himself as a roving folk festival ringer and nightclub oracle Steve Poltz. People say that we all have our spirit animal, but what if it was something a little smaller, a little more hard to pin down? You ever try and trap one of those tiny spiders in your bathroom with their furry legs and their wild tiny eyes and their quick unexpected movements and you can't and they stick around for days and weeks grinning down at you from the damp corner of the ceiling like some untouchable spirit? That's how Steve is to me an uncrushable sonic insect. And though he seems to be as young as us, mid-30 hopefuls in rental vans trying to make that Denver to Laramie to Bozeman to Spokane to Seattle run work for almost no money, he's actually been a recording artist since I was born, first breaking out with the San Diego-based underground punk folk favorites The Rugburns, making cult classics like Morning Wood and Mommy, I'm Sorry, then finding brief mid-90s fame as an accidental hitmaker and MTV video heartthrob with collaborator and longtime friend Jewel, who he helped write the unescapable radio earworm you were meant for me you know how that goes i was meant for you and you were meant for me it's still so good but most of us in this lifetime know steve as a wild-haired hard partying 200 shows a year internationally revered solo act who has put out a baker's dozen of whacked out high concept deceptively sensitive and fearlessly personal albums like chinese vacation traveling folk singer and last year's lushly leonard cohen like shine on. And it's those albums and the out-of-control, crazy man, shaman performances that have followed that have won him a devoted audience from his ancestral home in Nova Scotia to the dance party dives of Southern California and in festivals all across Australia and beyond. So oftentimes when I record a conversation for this podcast, it's actually hours and hours long. And thankfully, our wonderful editor, Chris, will find the best parts and whittle it down. So we're not talking about aliens creating a colony on Earth for 20 straight minutes. But one of the things that Steve told me that struck me most was actually after we stopped recording. And it was about missing that singular rush 
of stepping out onto a stage and telling your story, even to 10 strangers. Because there's something about writing songs and being able to perform for people you don't know and not just your wife and your houseplants that is the reason we do it. It's that tightrope walker stepping out over Niagara Falls feeling. That feeling of a knife's edge grazing your throat. Will you sing the song right? Will people smile? Will they dance? Will they feel what you're feeling? If there's one man that knows how to walk that edge every night, it's Steve Poltz. And that's the reason why my group, Dust Bowl Revival, had to have Steve open our first ever try at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco. And I can see him now under those lights, his long hair waving back and forth, jump into the darkness and people carrying him across the crowd as a loop of this land is your land was playing over and over again. And that smile a mile wide on his face I'll never forget that moment. And that's why I love Steve. You can never figure out which way he's gonna go, when he's gonna jump into the darkness. He's a rebel who's also been a Catholic altar boy, a traveler who nearly killed himself on stage after decades of drugs and alcohol, and I have to take this gig, even though it's nine hours away through a snowstorm exhaustion, took its toll to an ever-smiling sober sage, who at the age of 60 is finally married, and what's that you say? Settled down? making the same breakfast every day and walking all across Nashville like a monk in a baseball hat. And you know what? This quarantine is actually a blessing for some of us. Poltz doesn't have to run to the next show on some long road through the mountains. The blessing of this pandemic, maybe, is that it's made all of us slow down and look within ourselves. Look at the tiny, beautiful world of our springtime neighborhoods. And I'm glad Steve has found that peace at long last. And I'll leave you now with the words from his title track, Shine On, which I love so much. If you're going to reach, reach for the stars. Pack yourself a lunch in some antique jars. Celebrate your fears. Celebrate your scars. You've earned every one. You're a shiny old car. Shine on, shine on, shine on. So without further ado, the shine on man himself, Steve Pulse. Let it all fall free. Kick off your shoes and wiggle your feet. Shine on, shine on, shine on. My name is Steve Poltz. I'm a songwriter, singer, tourer, and I go around the world and I sing songs to people and I write songs and you know the drill. And you've been uh, you've been making records since way back in what the late '90s officially for your solo career. Yeah, man. I well, I started making records in '85 about. 1985 with the Rugburns. 
I'm still amazed that you're in Los Angeles and I'm in Nashville, but it sounds like we're in the same room together. For those of you out there listening, I was having the hardest time getting this thing going because I hate learning new stuff right now. I just don't feel like it. But since we're stuck home, like I like going to somebody's house and having them record me and just walking in. And I like being the guy that writes songs, walks in, doesn't have to think about anything, but where's the song I wrote? Where's the piece of paper? But in today's day and age, we've got to do a lot more. Um, you know, we've got to do shows online and everything. Yeah. Well, you were, and you were gracious enough to uh, play some songs on our weird sway at home fest that we tried <laughs> our Dust Bowl revival virtual music fest, which we're doing another round actually this coming weekend. Um, oh, wow. You know, it's like if you can't get all your favorite people in one place physically, why not try do it virtually? You know, cool. Who's playing this one? Some folks in Nashville for sure. Lindsay Lou and uh, the Warren Treaty, um, Pokey Lafarge, who else? Hot Club of Cowtown, Freddie and Francine. A lot of wow. folks who have been on this show and, uh, you know, are f sort of friends or acquaintances. Some people I've actually never met um, who I'm excited to see. And, you know, listening to your your songs in the car today was a rainy morning in L.A. And um, I was struck at how sort of sensitive and very deep a lot of these songs were, you know, especially, you know, like the, you know, the opening track of your of your newest record, Shine On. There's definitely a, a Tom Waits in a dusty piano bar vibe on some of these where you're sort of whispering in our ear. Well, the live show has always been different than the recordings for me, especially. And they've always been two different animals. And so it's hard to capture what you do on stage a lot of times and bring it into a recording. Maybe one day I'll be able to. The closest I've ever gotten is just coming in, recording, and then adding stuff around it, not using a click track if possible, and keeping it fresh. But it's really hard to capture stuff that's live. And so like a lot of people tape my shows and put them up online. How many dates do you usually play a year? A couple hundred and a... Uh, everything got canceled, you know, as for everybody else too, but there was going to be like 28 festivals all through the summer. And there was something happening every weekend. And so for me, it was kind of a big wake up call slap in the face that I was forced to just be home. And now what do I do kind of thing? And at first it was really cool. Cause I went, man, this is something I've always wanted and then I started getting kind of depressed about it. And I was just like, this sucks. And I mean, it would be one thing if I was just taking a year off and I could catch a flight and go down to like Todos Santos, Mexico, or come out to San Diego and see my dad and go see friends and go to shows. But instead, I can't go anywhere. And I've eaten every meal at home. And you're talking to a guy who ate every meal out. I was always on the road and trying restaurants and never even thinking. And now it's just been a complete lifestyle change. So I have good days and bad days. You know, sometimes I talk to my booking agent or my manager and everybody's just trying to figure stuff out, you know. 
my manager's, uh, you know, he likes to come up with cool ideas and bounces them off of me and same with the booking agent, but nobody really knows what's happening. So that's, what's kind of weird about this. Like we don't know when we actually will, because our line of work is going to be the last thing brought back in. Yeah. We're the least essential of workers. <laughs> yeah. We really, I mean, when you look at it, we really are, even though music is essential, but, and live music's great. It's like, we realize we're the last ones because even if you're traveling around and you're bringing only, I don't mean to say only, but if you're drawing like a hundred people, that's a hundred people in a smaller bar that it's not safe. I mean, they're not going to be socially distanced. So there's got to be some sort of a vaccine or there's got to be, we, we've got to see some light at the end of the tunnel because I don't want to go out and play in a bar and to a hundred people and shake their hands afterwards and put my arm around them and take pictures and stuff like that, that, you know, at the end of the show, it's like a, it's always a huge meet and greet by the merch table and people are hanging out and you're seeing old friends. And so it's going to be really weird to not give people a hug. Cause I'm like a golden retriever. I want to jump in people's arms and say, Hey, what's going on? And I can't do that now. So I don't know. I hope they get a cure. What was the last show that you played before the whole shutdown? Oh my gosh. The last show I played was, at City Winery in Nashville, and I threw a benefit. Uh, it was called All Hands on Deck. We had had a huge tornado here in Nashville on, uh, I think it was like March 2nd. Yeah, my and birthday, so, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. so I had just gotten home from the road, at, and I got out of a, I took a Uber to the house, from the airport in Nashville and got home at 11.30 and that a half hour later, it was devastation from a tornado. And I was out at the mailbox, just getting the mail. And I said to my wife, Sharon, I said, it is weird out here, come on out. It feels like electric. And then I went back inside and the next thing I know, we were on our bellies on the floor and this tornado came within about four blocks of our house and the whole place was shaking. And it destroyed friends of mine's houses. And I went and looked at it the next morning and it was just mass mayhem, like just some crazy huge monster truck came through and just destroyed things. And so we put together this benefit I did with my friend who books City Winery. And uh, we had a great lineup of people and I was backstage and it was like March 10th. And I remember I, one of my friends that I booked on the thing to play was Grant Lee Phillips, who used to live in Los Angeles. He was in a band called Grant Lee Buffalo. And he was the only one social distancing on March 10th backstage. He said, I can't hug you. Just stay away. Don't even come near me. And I said, God, he is being so paranoid. What a nervous Nelly. And I was sort of like, I wasn't mocking him, but I was just like, come on. And then two days later, I was him. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I called him to tell him that I couldn't believe he just knew what was going on. because. And then it was like, there was all these gossips, you know, people in 
texting me. I think South by Southwest is going to cancel. Oh my God, South by Southwest did cancel. Oh my God, who's next? Oh, so-and-so isn't even going on tour. And it was like dominoes just falling. And now if somebody's like, I'm supposed to be playing like Sawtooth Festival in Idaho, I'm thinking, how have they not canceled yet? I mean, I don't want them. I want there to be a cure. So I'm not bagging on them. I'm just thinking when somebody hasn't canceled yet, I think, how are you people even thinking this is going to still happen? Yeah. But, you know, everybody's trying to stay optimistic in their own way, and they've all got their own decisions. Like Folk Alliance already canceled for February or late January of 2021. Wow, really? They just, yeah, they already canceled. Maybe it's February. So, like, these are weird times. I mean, look, you've you've been around for a while, and you've seen a lot of stuff, and I try to get a sense of someone's life and, and where they came from. And I thankfully found this this beautiful song from your traveling record, which is from um, 2008, The Brief History of My Life. And it really, I think, it gives us a good snapshot of, of who you are and, and how you came from Nova Scotia, Canada, and you guys drove to Pasadena. And you kind of, you give us the sort of winding road to, you know, how you grew up you know, and coming from Canada to uh, this Southern California, completely different way of life. I mean, was that a, a, a big whiplash change? Um, not for me. I was really young. I was a little kid, but I'm lucky enough to be a dual citizen. But for my dad and mom, it sure was. And uh, they, you know, they would always tell me, uh, you know, how things were so much different. And we moved to Los Angeles, to Pasadena, and the Watts riots had happened, and my dad was working for an insurance company, and his area was Watts. And wow, he he didn't know any different. He was, you know, from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and so it was a whole a whole strange world. And he ended up getting a job, and we moved out to the desert to Palm Springs. So when I wrote that song, A Brief History of My Life, it had like 16 verses, and I played it for my friend Bob Schneider when I was in Austin before I recorded it. And I go, this is called A Brief History of My Life, and I finished it, and he goes, there ain't nothing brief about that song. You need to edit it. So I cut out like eight verses or something. <laughs> we first moved to the USA all the way from Canada. Drove across the continent from Nova Scotia to Pasadena. My sister and me and my mom and dad from the cold to the sunny south. There were palm trees growing and it was not snowing and I never did shut my mouth. But every time I see him, I always laugh because we, I, you know, you just have certain friends where you can just say anything to him and that's how bob's always been we go back and your mom was uh, an english teacher right yeah my mom taught english at the catholic school that i went to and uh saint rita's in pasadena saint rita's elementary and uh that was we lived in hastings ranch and uh so my mom was what they call a lay teacher so she wasn't a nun she didn't wear the habit but um, I was taught by priests and nuns 
And that's why when I went to university, I went to University of San Diego, which was a Catholic university, and I was taught by more priests and religious religious folks, you know, like Buddhists and all different kinds of people. It was a great, it was a really cool school because it was a private uh, Catholic university, and so I would bring the teachers home to my parents' house in Palm Springs uh, from San Diego, like for Thanksgiving, I would bring home one who was a total right winger who'd written books about Nixon. And then I brought one that was a total socialist that was really involved in the Sandinistas and Nicaragua. And I would get them drunk on wine and they would try to hit on my sister and we'd have these great political discussions. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned in the song that, that Elvis hugged your sister a little bit too long. Did that actually happen? <laughs> yeah, we met uh, Elvis uh, when we were kids because uh, we lived in Palm Springs. And so I met Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope went to our church. And then Elvis Presley uh, came into the airport and we got to meet him at the airport. We rode our bikes on the tarmac and he was so nice. And he that was like a huge lesson. Just like he took so much time talking to my sister and, and to me. And then we met Frank Sinatra and he was like the total opposite. He was like, get away, kid. You bother me. Which yeah. was really cool too. Like it fit the image. <laughs> Just kind of what you'd expect. I think Elvis really needed it. I, I feel like Elvis, you know, even though he got really big and everything, he still had that sort of insecurity where he needed... Hmm. to be loved. He was kind of like a mama's boy, whereas Sinatra was kind of a mobster. <laughs> More macho, you know? Plus, it was a different time, you know? Like, it, you, watch the movie Bad News Bears. I always tell people this. <laughs> watch the original Bad News Bears and tell me how, that movie would never get made today. Like the racial stereotypes and the stuff they're saying, or for that matter, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yeah. Like Mickey Rooney's role as an Asian guy, the Asian landlord, it's like, number one, why would they have him play the Asian guy and give him buck teeth and the way he's speaking? You're just watching it going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Like, but I love old movies because – and I even call old movies like I'm obsessed with 80s movies now because they're such period pieces. And I love looking at the kind of phones people were using, how they were dressed. And then I like going back into the early 60s, like Jerry Lewis, The Bellboy, mm -hmm. which is like basically a it's a black and white film that Jerry Lewis wrote and directed and stars in. And I'm telling you, this thing still holds up. Like watch The Bellboy. I always, uh, I stay up later than my wife. She'll fall asleep usually an hour before me. And I was giggling so hard last night in bed watching it. It's so madcap and silly. It's kind of what you need right now. But let's go back to the brief history of my life because I, I love that song and, and it's sort of, um, it symbolizes to me, you know, this sort of thread throughout your work, which is you telling the audience directly, this is true but almost with like a wink, you know, like everything right. I'm saying is true or is it, you know? Right. And you have this line um, that you said to the audience at the belly up, because you have a live record 2015 uh, live at the belly up in San Diego where you play 
the song that you wrote with Jewel, you know, You Were Meant For Me, which was, you know, obviously a huge hit song um, back in 90, was it 95 or so? Um, yeah. And you open with the line, you know, never let truth get in the way of a good story. My dad told me that, right? Yeah. Which I think is sort of like, it's like the narrator telling you, I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> telling my own truth, but it's a truth that is bigger than truth. And I think that's so beautiful in its own way that we have to be able to take liberties with our own story, you know? Well, you don't want to bore the audience. You got to have a, there's got to be a purpose to it. I mean, unless you want to bore the audience or the, the disc jockey or whatever, which is also an art form. And let's not forget that. Like, it's actually really fun. I have done that before on radio where I've told a story that has no point at all to see how long I could keep going just as a weird joke. But, right. um, which the DJ didn't think was that funny till he finally caught on. But <laughs> yeah, like I would, in the brief history of my life, it's, or in, in the song I wrote with Jewel, it's fun to tell a story about how we wrote that, which was on a drug bust in Mexico involving all this marijuana back in the 90s, you know, before legalization or anything. And it that really did happen. But you've got to make the story interesting and add little details that may or may not have happened because you want to take the audience on this crazy journey. And if I do that song justice, because I've told that story in so many different ways that I don't even know what's true anymore because I'm always trying to mix it up or add something. And so I recently played that song with Jewel last year when I played Telluride Bluegrass Fest and she lives in Telluride. And I had her come out to the show and then I surprised everybody and she came out on stage and people were crying. Like, now's the time for you were meant for me to be thrown in some movie. Like I could see Will Ferrell singing it at a karaoke bar drunk, like running down the road singing you were meant for me naked or something. I don't know. It would be used in some funny way in some movie because everybody knows that song from that time because, I mean, the thing sold like, millions of records and was the longest running song on the billboard 100 until i think a jason mraz song finally knocked it off as longest running single like sometimes there's just a song that comes out at the right time and it's beyond your control you don't know it's going to be a hit you have no clue like when we recorded that song i didn't know it was going to be a hit we recorded it at we lived at neil young's ranch in northern california and that's where we, you know, it was the Stray Gators and it was Neil Young's pedal steel guitarist produced the record, Ben Keith. And we lived at Elliot's place, who was Neil's manager. He had a little apartment, a uh, little house, casita on Neil Young's property. And so we lived there and made that record. And that was me playing guitar and the rest of the Stray Gators and Jewel. And who knew that song was going to be such a huge hit? I didn't. And then I was the guy in the video you know, not wearing a shirt. And I, I, I'm really good friends with this guy, Anthony DaCosta. And I know uh, he lives in Nashville. And he said, man, you were the guy we hated. Because they were like, when that came out, they were like young kids. They're like, who's that guy touching her? And <laughs> Shirtless like, ghost guy. Yeah. And so 
it's just, life is just weird because you don't know what's going to happen to you. Or at least I don't, I never knew what was going to happen to me. It's just, it was almost like getting an, an, an endowment from the arts so that I could go <laughs> yeah. and make my own warped sense of humor music and have a little bit of a cushion and a safety net. wish everybody could experience that and but the thing is i don't think we'll have i mean you'll still have songs that are huge hits but not like those days where radio sort of they were the gatekeepers still back then and mtv and there was woodstock 99 that we played and it was just a different time for music and i you know you still have hits like billy eilish uh singing bad guy and stuff like that song was pretty ubiquitous, but I I don't think you have hits like "Losing My Religion," REM, and um, U2, and stuff like that anymore. Where we really all know those songs. Do you feel like we do? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think when radio was the pervasive um, modicum of of listening it was everyone sort of had to hear that jewel song it was like you didn't have a choice right now we have like we have so much choice that we actually don't know what to pick as like our sort of soul touching music you know there's times where i actually get choice paralysis just on my spotify you know where i'm like i i want to read outside so maybe i'll put on some john coltrane but i could put on any Coltrane album from the last, you know, his, you know, 30 years of records, you know, mm, or maybe I'll just, uh, you know, it's like you don't know what to pick because there's so much to pick. Whereas before you were sort of, you know, spoon fed the popular culture, you know, which was good and bad in some ways. But um, I'm curious what your folks thought when they saw you as a shirtless ghost on a hit video on MTV? Like, was it like weird for them? Well, I had graduated from university and I had a job as a nipple salesman. So I sold these pipe nipples, these plastic PVC pipe nipples that you screw a sprinkler head on. And that was my gig. And so I had that as my job and my parents were happy because it was like the graduate. It was where they keep going, plastics. And then I quit to start the rug burns and they were just bummed. And then I end up doing this song with Jewel and they were so proud because everybody saw me on TV and we were doing Leno and Letterman because I was in her band and we were touring everywhere. And so... Then they didn't have to worry so much. And then I put out a solo record on Mercury Universal and had this huge budget. Like, I just don't know that people get, I'm not saying it's better or worse today. It might be better because, you know, there's no, there aren't the gatekeepers that there used to be. And anybody can put a record up and then right. deliver it to TuneCore and pick 
do they want it on Spotify, iTunes, or anything. But I'm really glad that I got to have those other days too where I had like this huge budget and was flown out to New York and picking a producer. But I'm having just as much, if not more fun now, I mean, other than this pandemic, but making music and being in control of everything. But I don't know that we're going to have those moments where something is as well known. And But I, I mean, I had people hating on me too because of that song, you know, because I was in the Rugburns and we were singing, you know, a different style of music, like Scott fucking Line of Toronto and all these other songs. And then they were like, you were meant for me and you're the dude in the Jewel video. But now it's aged enough where if anybody hated you for it, they don't anymore. Now they're like, whoa, you guys wrote that? And it touches some nerve in their soul where it, it brings up this wave of nostalgia for the 90s. And the, it's the same nostalgia thing I get for the 80s when I see 80s films. Even if I didn't like songs from the 80s, now I'm like, I get, I'm dancing at the end credits of certain movies. So I, I'm glad that I got to have that experience is what I'm trying to say. Well, you know, you, yeah, you, and you put out that record, uh, One Left Shoe for Mercury, was a 98. And, yeah. You know, and you quickly had a split from them, you know, from not agreeing with the artistic direction maybe they wanted to put you in. And you went on your own, made your own record company. And, you know, you're such a free spirit and such a unique voice that it's hard almost to believe that they would try to pigeonhole you in this major record label pop sphere. But there's something that's so weird about the 90s is that acoustic kind of uh, angular folk rock was pop music then. I mean, it's like that that was like a thing that was totally cool and accepted. Well, I think what happened was everybody had finally gotten tired of grunge. And, you know, at first it was Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and then there were all these bands that wanted to be like them and it was like you know there was Candlebox and I can't remember all the band's names but and so by the time all of a sudden Jewel comes around singing with an acoustic guitar and Sarah McLachlan and uh, Paula Cole and uh, I, I could go on and on there were so many women all of a sudden it was like it was Lilith Fair Alanis Morissette yeah Alanis Morissette yeah and uh who was the girl that did St. Teresa, Joan Osborne, and Lisa Loeb? It was, there were so many women uh, playing guitar and singing songs. And I think it was just like people wanted something different and it touched a nerve. And I was the, just the recipient of good timing is all. Like me meeting Jewel and that song blowing up. Like I was just talking to Jewel yesterday and we're going to do a, one of those split screen on Instagram and we were laughing about life. And uh, I mean, she's into like mindfulness and stuff now. And I saw her talking to Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce and, and the head of Starbucks. And she was talking about mindfulness. I mean, like anything goes today. It was just weird. Like there's so... Uh, for me to have even been involved in that, I think what makes me laugh is I was in the Rugburns. Dude, our songs were not radio ready. And, and then when I got that record deal, um, do you remember a guy like, his name was Duncan Sheik? Mm -hmm. 
yeah, he was pretty big and he had a song called Barely Breathing that did really well. And the label kind of, you know, they would say like, be more like that. Like, don't, you know, like quit being a, a fool on stage and you're having too much fun. Like, we need you to be a little more like this. Like, they try to hint that, but you couldn't, I'm like a wild animal and so... Whatever anybody said, I didn't even listen to. I just kind of did my own shows. Do you do you think that that troublemaker sort of rebellious streak comes from maybe subconsciously rebelling against this Catholic altar boy upbringing that you had, or is it like a separate part of your brain where you're a good guy over here and you want to, you know, raise hell over here? Maybe I just think I'm just goofy. I don't even think I. Can. I can't even really overthink it. It's just I was the, always the guy that found humor in funerals and very inappropriate things. Like I would go into laughing fits and I've always been, I've, I'm still like I was. And so I think I've just always been kind of goofy. That's why I was laughing so hard watching Jerry Lewis last night. Like I love silly stuff, but then I also love really sad songs and, beautiful art so maybe i just don't know what i'm doing i always like the idea of being like the dean martin of folk singers and so i liked having a martini on stage and a bottle of wine and ordering shots and ordering like i used to order like 70 shots of tequila and then have everybody in the audience come up and drink a shot like one at a time or all together. And then I would owe the club money. I just didn't <laughs> care. Right. And get really drunk and do drugs and stay up all night and do hallucinogens and then see where that took me. But eventually, it's really hard to keep that pace up. I tried. I remember when I was in the Rugburns, I was just talking to our old bass player, John Castro, the other day about this. And I said, do you remember that one time we ate mushrooms and we were in someplace in Pennsylvania and we were outside at our van. I've never forgotten this. And the van was a mess. You know what it's like in a band and just a bunch of guys and there's just piss bottles and old burritos and just crap everywhere. And we were sitting in the van because we didn't want to keep the other guys up and we're completely peaked out of our heads on mushrooms. And I remember saying to him, I've been drunk 76 days in a row because we had been on the road. We were trying to figure out how many days we'd been on tour. We had been, it was our 76th day and it was like 70 shows in 76 days. Like we were playing nonstop colleges, everything. And I said, I don't even know who I am anymore. I mean, look at this. And we were both going back to that moment. We started laughing so hard because we were about to either start crying or laughing and, eventually it just gets so hazy and so crazy and um, everything's just foggy that it was either die or you got to quit doing this. Cause, and so I just quit everything because it was going to kill me finally. But I wanted to see how far we could take it. Well, yeah, you, you know, there was a, an article I read where you talked to a, addictions counselor and basically they gave you an assessment saying like you know if you don't stop this you're going to be dead in a week yeah the guy the guy goes you're an elevator see how the elevator's going down 
You're going to go below ground and you will be dead in a week. I've seen this before. Well, because, like, you just get into certain substances and, you know, Coke and crack. And you just, for me, I just, I don't know. I always wanted more and more and more. And so it was like people were partying with me in shifts. So they would, like, do a few hour shifts. I would hole up in some hotel and then. I'd be up like three, four days straight and somebody would show up and keep partying with me. And I was getting anonymous letters from people, you know, prior to email and people worried. I would play shows and fall down on the ground. I remember this happened more than once where we got the power turned off on us on stage. <laughs> One time we ate so much pot bread and we were listening to Of Mice and Men and... David Carradine was reading it. It was like a books on tape, you know, those cassettes. Yeah. And Country Dick Montana of the Beat Farmers had died, and we were really sad. So somebody had made us this pot bread, like banana bread, that was so high in THC. Like you didn't, it wasn't stuff like today where it's measured out. You had no clue. Right. And I was completely peaking, and we pull up to this club called Monsoons. I've still never forgotten this, in Flagstaff, Arizona, and we go inside to play, and there's like six people there to see us. You know, like when you're touring, sometimes only yeah. six people come out to see you. Like, I feel sorry for bands that's, that that's never happened to, that just like had fame right away, because there's nothing better than showing up to a club and no posters are up and you play to six people. I mean, you've got to go through that. It builds your calluses. And I've never forgotten that. We show up, there's six people there, and I'm peeking so hard on this pot bread, and I could not quit laughing. And uh, I fell down on the floor, and I'm giggling, and there's five people in the audience who start leaving. And then the rest of the band walks off stage, and this makes me laugh even harder. And then they turn the power off. And we, of course, we didn't get paid, and we get kicked out of the club. <laughs> they made us leave. The bouncer escorted us out. And they went to this other club, and there was this guy named Joel Raphael playing, who I still know. He lives in San Diego. Really good. He's like a Woody Guthrie kind of guy. And his show was sold out, like 130 people packed. Everybody's singing along, and his show was so professional. And I remember uh, looking at the band, and I was like, he's like the Bruce Springsteen of Flagstaff, Arizona. And then we start laughing even harder and we get thrown out of that show. I mean, eventually shit just catches up with you if you're like, if you're partying the way I was. And so you get sober. I'm, I'm just glad that you're still here. Thanks, man. Me too. You know, like there were times when we were in the band where I remember I got in a fist fight with our drummer in the middle of the road and we both got handcuffed and we had bloody noses and black eyes and the cops were there. We, and uh, there was a journalist traveling with us and doing a story on us. And our drummer threw a beer bottle at my head while I was driving. I was so pissed. I slammed the car in the middle of an intersection and we got out in the middle of the intersection. We were fighting like just stupidity. Like there's one story after another of like somebody pulling a gun out on stage or, a fight breaks out in the crowd or somebody throws a bottle at my head because we were playing crazy bars too. And, you know, we'd start our tours in Tijuana, Mexico and drive all the way to New York and we'd just have these wild shows. And Where did you play in Tijuana? Living this life. 
Mr. Crowns, it was called. And it was like they would let 16-year-olds in there. I mean, everybody just be drinking. And we had this song that was kind of a minor radio hit called Hitchhiker Joe, and that would get picked up in Tijuana through 91X, which was broadcast out of Tijuana. And so we had this big Mexico following, too, down there in Tijuana, and then Americans would come across the border, too, that were underage because they could drink there. And it was just a different time. And, I mean, they're all stories, and it was fun. I There's so many stories of just, like, craziness that happened that now being able to tour and not be drunk makes it a lot easier you know to wake up in the morning get to the airport on time get to the show on time be able to put on a show without getting the power turned off on you for doing something dumb and uh but it is it i have good memories though it's not like i'm looking back on it in horror like they were good times (laughs) I think we should get a sense of that 1994 record, Morning Wood, by the Rugburns, and we should hear some of Hitchhiker oh, yeah. Joe played yeah, on yeah. the radio stations of Tijuana. Don't pick up Hitchhiker Joe, slit your throat, and cut off your big toe, I tell you, he'll make you smile from ear to ear, gonna lock you in a trunk. That's a good idea. That's a song about a cannibalistic hitchhiker that uh, they pick up. And we had, we made the, a really cool video for it. It's on YouTube, Hitchhiker Joe. And it's about this hitchhiker that people pick up and he eats them for dinner. And the video is hilarious. And we would have these fans show up and everybody in the audience would be drunk and people would say things like, I have a helicopter. <laughs> and so I'd go, you do? Bring it tomorrow. We're going to shoot a video. And we would just take people up on their insane offers. And like when we started playing, I always, this is what I've always said, find a bar and make it your own. And we found a bar, this Irish pub, Kelly's, where nobody was playing and it just had hardcore alcoholics. And if you find a place and can make it your own and play every week, which we did for two or three years in a residency, it becomes so packed and it becomes this scene. I'm, I'm almost really sentimental for those days and I want to find a place like that again, a bar where nobody goes to that's just a shithole that you make your own scene out of and put together a band and just start playing and I swear to you, an audience will come. I tell musicians this all the time. If you really believe in what you're doing, create your own scene and magic's going to happen. But give it a couple years if you have something to offer and you provide joy and entertainment for people, you're going to have this audience and there's nothing better than creating a tribe of people that show up that want to support you. And that's where you really, you know, get your calluses. Sometimes you have to yeah, find your place that no one else has found yet or find your audience in unexpected places, you know, because sometimes the biggest, coolest, you know, clubs in the coolest cities are just hard to break into, you know? I know. Are there are there certain little nooks and crannies of this country or, or maybe anywhere in the world that you would want to go back to when this whole quarantine is finished? 
Yeah, it's weird. There's certain markets where, for whatever reason, like Halifax, Nova Scotia, I could sell out four nights in a row at this club called the Carlton. And then um, Melbourne, Australia, there's a place called the Spotted Mallard that I hope doesn't go out of business where I can do a couple nights in a row there. And it's just like really good fans and people know my music and they're excited and they're there to listen. And uh, I got clubs like that in Ireland that I want to go back to. And then all over the U.S. there's different markets, you know, where you show up at a certain funky little area and for whatever reason, it works. Well, we all try to like figure out ways to, I think, stay content with the, you know, improprieties and the constant humblings of the road when you're not famous and well taken care of, you know? Are there things that you do you know, after a particularly tough stretch that, you know, keep you grateful and keep you joyful because you, you bring so much joy to your performances, but obviously, you know, there's been a lot of stuff that's happened to you. You know, you had a, a stroke on stage in 2016, right? I mean, like, how did you, how did you get through that situation? I just, uh, kept playing the show and couldn't see and, I was really, I didn't know what was going on. I was really confused. And I ended up in the hospital at Princeton University Medical Center because I was playing in Wilmington, Delaware. But I ended up at Princeton University Medical Center and had this stroke. And so that was really uh, scary, obviously. And, I mean, stuff will happen to you on the road. I've always said I'll probably end up dying on the road. Because, and that's why this pandemic may have been good for me because it showed me that the world does go on and I don't have to play these shows because I'm, I'm kind of like a depression era kid. You know, like you hear about depression era people that are like, you got to save that. You might run out of food. All the old timers that were depression era people. Well, I was like a depression era kid when it came to gigs. Like I was so happy that anybody would even allow me to play that I felt like I had to say yes. Yeah. So I was on stage and I was playing and then all of a sudden I go blind Mm. and I could only kind of see out of my left keyhole on my left eye and I was having a full-blown stroke and I didn't know it and I was singing the same verse to this song over and over. Oh my God. And people are looking at me like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Thinking I'm joking though, so they're laughing. (laughs) And then I asked the audience, I was like, can you guys see? And the audience is like, we can see. And then I said, are the lights on? Yeah. So I kept playing and then I was going to oh faint. God. And then I said, I got to stop. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel good. I was nauseous. And then I get, somebody drives me because I can't drive. So they drive me to the uh, emergency room. And if you ever want to get in ahead of everybody in line, just tell them that you can't see. And it's like a curtain came down. Right. Those are like major stroke signals. Right. So, I mean, I didn't know that then, but I know that now. And so they rush me in and they do all these tests and then I go into the stroke ward and then uh, I eventually get out of the hospital after a few days and I came back. I was living in San Diego at the time before I moved to Nashville. And there I was uh, recuperating from a stroke and that's what got me into the Grateful Dead was it took a stroke 
to get me into the music of the dead because then I got totally into the Grateful Dead after the stroke. It was like somebody who gets a taste for a different kind of food all of a sudden. Like they get Brussels, they like Brussels sprouts out of the blue. Right. That was me. Like I totally got into the dead and I was never into them prior to that. I didn't hate them. They just weren't on my radar. Like I don't really hate any bands. I just don't listen to certain bands. And so then I just I got, it was like peeling back layers of an onion, discovering the dead and all these deadheads and live shows. And there were all these teachers around me to say, oh, listen to 72, listen to Althea from 1980 at Cornell or whatever, you know, and all these different versions of songs and listen to Jerry play with Tony Rice and listen to Jerry and Olden in the way. And God, it's like, I'm still always discovering stuff. And um, some of it's horrible. Some of the live recordings, you know, the harmonies are terrible. And then other stuff is just magic. And it's like, there's this dead thing where you don't know what song they're going to go and do. And they're noodling in between songs and they're tuning. And then all of a sudden it hits this groove and you're carried away on this toboggan ride. It's beautiful. So I think the stroke slowed me down is what happened and the dead's music made sense to me. Hmm. Maybe like hardcore dead enthusiasts have done so many drugs that it's like its own stroke. Like they've all had strokes and they don't know it. And that's like, <laughs> that's the perfect place where dead appreciation comes in. <laughs> that's the only, that's always the, the funny thing about like my dad being such a hardcore dead fan is my dad was like a huge dead fan, but never smoked weed. Like he like, <laughs> and I never quite understood the connection. I was like, so you got so hardcore into the dead that my sister had to steal the CDs out of his car so he wouldn't play it every day on the way to school. <laughs> and yet he never really did any drugs except that there was one conversation we had out of the blue like years ago where he's like, yeah, like when I was in college, I think I did ecstasy once and it kind of changed things for me. I was like, wait, what? Whoa. Like it was so out of the blue. You know, he's like, yeah, the dad did X. He was like, the trees were like talking and yeah. You know, that was all I needed that one time. <laughs> Whoa. What do, you, what do you think the most extreme thing your dad did? Uh, he just drank, you know, whiskey, and he was in the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, and he was he's pretty mellow. I'm still really close to him. He's 90, and I send him Westerns all the time because he's stuck out in California, likes to read Westerns, so I'm online a lot looking for Westerns, and then I send him books and I'm going to send him some World War II books, like stories, like fiction. He likes fiction, like spy novels and stuff, you know. He's 90 and his mind's sharp, and I think it's because he's reading still. Mm. Is there ever a, a song that you wrote specifically about him? Yeah, there's a song um, on the Rugburns album, Morning Wood, and the song is called Holliston Street. And it's like totally a sentimental that was like that song kind of encapsulates me back then i was even writing songs like that mm. and then i would write something like goofy like sugar boogers or the key is to just not censor yourself and write anything and write often and if you do that you're going to stumble into songs that'll be keepers and others will just die 
and uh, you'll go back maybe in the future and you'll go, wow, that song was actually cool. And maybe it wasn't ready at its time and now it's aged well. But the key is to write a lot. It's like fishing, you know, if you don't do it, you're not going to catch anything. So you got to write and then, um, and don't censor yourself. I always tell people that. And you, you were there when your uh, mom passed, right? You were able to experience that. Yeah, I was with her. Um, she died in December a couple years ago, uh, right before Christmas. And uh, it was really, uh, it's, we, it's sad. Obviously, you lose a parent and you lose your mom. But I thought like when they pass away, I might see like, I always hear people like, you could see the spirit leave the body and stuff, but we just had like a TV on and they were doing a Saturday Night Live rerun and Adam Sandler was singing the Hanukkah song before my mom died. I was laughing so hard. I had my arm wrapped around her leg and we had been through like 48 hours of, you know, is she dead? Is she here? And you just get like punch drunk. And I was watching him sing the Hanukkah song and I was laughing so hard. And then all of a sudden I looked and there she did, took her last breath. And then you just go from that to sobbing. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't see a spirit leave the body or anything. That would have been cool. But then, you know, the people come and they cover her up and they take her away in a white van. And the undertaker, man, fit the role. He was all dressed in black and had dark circles under his eyes. And he just looked like he just, he's all he did was work with dead people. Mm. And I walked my mom out to the van and just like that, she's gone. Mm. And then my dad's crying, my sister's crying, and I'm trying to, you know, soothe them and not cry. But it was powerful. And I'll tell you, if anybody out there is listening and your folks are still alive, you're lucky because... You don't know when they're gone, they're really gone. So, I mean, death is so permanent. That's what sucks about it. Where do you think we go when we die? Man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew the answer to that. The only thing I know is I don't know anything. I wish I could give you some sort of answer. Maybe, maybe that's just it and we become carry-on and we're just dust. And that's it. I mean, everybody always likes to say, Oh, she's with grandma right now up in heaven, which is really <laughs> a nice thought. But part of me is just like that John Prine song where he said, his dad said to him, son, when you're dead, you're a dead pecker head. And uh, I don't know. The romantic side in me wants to think, oh, we're all together again. And I hope, I mean, that'd be cool. Maybe we're just this energy force and we come back again you know, that's the whole reincarnation thing till we get it right. I have no clue. Does anybody know? <laughs> I mean, maybe there is a, a larger plan. It's like that Dylan song, Every Grain of Sand, where he says, every hair is numbered like every grain of sand. That's like one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Hmm. And uh, that was like when he was in his kind of, I guess, Christian phase maybe when he wrote that. Yeah. And uh, I love a lot of those records that he put out that time, like Gotta Serve Somebody. Mm -hmm. That was so good. Shot of Love. But I don't know. I was raised with religion, you know. But all I know is I don't know anything, which is actually a good place to be. 
So I think I have an open mind. I mean, there's so many different people with so many different viewpoints that I think a lot of times we forget that and we expect people to be like us and we get our little tribes. But unless we really reach across the aisle and really get out of our own little tribes, you know, the world will be all these different factions and especially with the internet and you can find whatever you want to fit your tribe, mm -hmm. whatever it is you want to believe. If you want to be an anti-vaxxer or you think this pandemic was caused by Bill Gates, guess what? You'll find a video making you feel like you're that you've found your tribe. And <laughs> there's just like, there's a lot of madness and a lot of, uh, there's so much, bad information out there that I think we're just in this transitional phase, which was the phase of the internet, which like when people look back at the days of the industrial revolution and when the first automobile, um, I mean, there's been such a sea change, you know, with jobs being decimated, the music industry being rewritten. It's still the wild west out here on the internet. And they, we're not where we need to be yet is what I'm saying as human beings. And maybe something really drastic needs to happen, even worse than a pandemic, maybe some crazy world war. Maybe it'll be like a Cormac McCarthy novel or something. And I think, did he write the road? Mm -hmm. And it, maybe, I mean, we don't know anything could happen. I, I do know that when I play shows and I play live music, there are a lot of people from different backgrounds that come to see me and they're not all alike, you know, some live in the Midwest, some are liberal elites on the East coast and the West coast. And some are foreigners from far away. I don't know. I know when they come to the show, I try to get them to all come together and I feel like it's good medicine and I feel like music can be good medicine. And so I, th I think when I play shows that I, I'm bringing hopefully something good into the world, yet I don't want to die because I want to see what happens next. Like I want to see where we're heading. You're an essential worker in my mind, Steve. Thank you. I like that. Yeah. And you know, the, the last song I want to ask you about, um, is, a. Uh, furthest star which is on shine on um oh yeah this really kind of contemplative peaceful number uh, that it just made me think about you know the, the 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 most human instinct that we have i think is searching for something far beyond our comprehension you know that's what makes us i think unique among all creatures that have ever lived you know we are looking above the trees we're looking above the sky to the farthest star and wondering is there someone looking back at me you know yeah and that's you know that sort of searching and that yearning is really captured i think in that song with the it's not an interplay with the guitar tell me about that song a little bit that was another one i wrote with uh um anthony DaCosta. Um, do you know him? I've heard of him recently, yeah. He's a Nashville guy who's from New York, um, lived in Austin, and we've written a bunch together. Like he would, 
he hasn't come over since the pandemic, except uh, hopefully he will again once we can all be together. But he would come over all the time and we would just write because it just worked. He could, he's a great writer. And so that one, I just came up with that idea of that chord and then I would start singing something and then he's just immediately adding to it and suggesting chord changes and lyric changes. He's, he's not afraid to pipe in. And so uh, both of those were ones that I started that he helped me finish, if that makes sense. And then there's other songs that he would start that I'd help him finish and they, I like them all just the same. What song would you like to play us? Oh, um, I would like to play a new one that I wrote with Anthony DaCosta. Okay. It's Anthony DaCosta Day. What's this song called? Stardust and Satellites. Nice. Where's the heat when you need it? Colder than it should be. I remove the AC from my window. I want to sweat you out of me. I was floating down my own path. Like a drunken butterfly Put me back in my cocoon I want to sleep it off tonight Why not? Is what I thought its own country I was dreaming down my own path like a ragged raconteur put me back in my own cell Why not? Is what I thought 
have it, Mr. Steve Poltz. You can go to poltz.com, that's P-O-L-T-Z.com, for his music and his tour dates. As you can imagine, so many of the festivals that Steve was supposed to be playing on, like Del Fest, this coming weekend, are canceled. But if you're a new fan, make sure to subscribe to his Facebook and YouTube pages, because he will go online and play for hours, live, for you, playing all across his crazy catalog. It is super fun to watch, and please donate to folks like Steve at his Venmo and his PayPal. It is the best way to give back to artists directly. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, Steve was one of the first people to sign on to our Sway at Home Fest in April, and guess what? We are coming back for Sway at Home 2 this weekend, May 23rd and 24th on Dust Bowl Revival's Facebook Live. We have some incredible artists like Pokey Lafarge, The War and Treaty, Lindsay Liu, Freddie and Francine, the infamous String Dusters will be there, Alana James the Fiddler from Hot Club of Cowtown will be playing, also Valerie June, I'm told, will be leading us in a meditation, and also playing some of her awesome songs. 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time, May 23rd and 24th. See you there for Suede Home 2. If you head over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see a piece called Gig Bag, Steve Poltz. Yes, he dives into the essentials of what he brings on his 285-day-a-year tour schedule. Steve does love his stats, and he found out that he does eat a pound of oats a week. And that's not just any oats, it's Bob's Red Mill 5-Grain Rolled Oats Cereal with flaxseed, and he has to have his PG Tips English breakfast tea with him as well. Love that piece. Check it out at bluegrasssituation.com. And please do be sure to check out the other wonderful podcasts on the Bluegrass Situation Network. They've been so good to us. And on May 12th, there's a really cool piece about Lily Hyatt. She will be one of the artists on our Suede Home Fest. She is an incredible guitar player and singer. Check it out now. The string on bluegrasssituation.com. For those of you who are stuck at home like me, making three meals a day and washing dishes until your hands fall off, please check out a really cool history podcast called The Last Archive from Pushkin Industries. One of the coolest things I've heard in a long time, they just debuted their first episode, The Clue of the Blue Bottle, and it's about how history and facts and clues 
inform us about what reality really is. So check that out, The Last Archive. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions and lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun.